Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Today, Lily's going to talk to us about the seven different types of sea turtles that are living in the different ocean areas of our one big ocean all around the world. We've got a special guest and good friend who's going to talk to us about the Ocean Bridge Program for young people between the ages of 19 and 30 who are looking to kickstart their career in environmentalism or conservation. I've got some tips on how to implicate yourself into a conservation organization or environmental group. And I'm going to reflect a little bit on my own path of becoming a professional outdoor conservationist. Hey, Lily. Hi. So what can you tell us about sea turtles and their unique senses? Well, the sea turtles have existed since the time of the dinosaurs. So the earliest marine turtle lived about 120 million years ago. Wow. And the Desmatochylus padillae was six feet or like, you know, 183 centimeters. And it looked like a modern turtles as it also had a carapace or, you know, that's like the heart, their shell. That's a hard shell and paddle like limbs. Wow. All right. Cool. The 120 million years old. So how many different types of sea turtles are there existing now? Today, there are seven species of sea turtles from smallest to biggest. There are the Kemp's Ridley Olive Ridley, Hawksbill, Flatback, Green, Loggerhead, and Leatherback. Oh, okay. Leatherbacks are my favorite. Uh, The smallest species can reach uh, two to three feet, which is 70 centimeters long and weigh 88 pounds. So they're they're heavy, which is like, you know, 40 kilograms. Solid little turtle. Uh, While the leatherback, they can get up to like six feet, which is 180 centimeters and weigh up to 1,100 pounds. Wow, that's a lot of turtle. It's larger than the fossils found of its prehistoric ancestor, the Padalai, or Padalai. Yeah. Huh. That's huge turtle. Yeah. No, the largest marine turtle known was a leatherback turtle that washed up on a beach in Wales in 1988. It measured eight feet and weighed a thousand nine hundred and eighty pounds how many kilos is that nine hundred nine hundred kilos <laughs> that's like a small car yeah <laughs> can you tell us more about their anatomy and feeding habits well they don't have teeth they have beaks oh so they're made it's which are made out of keratin so that's the same thing that our hair and our fingernails are made out okay. of uh, turtle shells consist of over 50 bones fused together so this actually means that they wear their bones on the outside Also, their bones are light and spongy, which helps them float. Cool. Floating bones. Where are they found, Lily? Marine turtles live in most of the world's oceans, apart from cold polar seas. They tend to spend their lives in relatively shallow continental shelf waters. You know, every so often, my friend, uh, Dr. Chris Harvey Clark from Dalhousie University, he's uh, director of the veterinarian clinic there, gets a call in late fall to rescue a frostbitten sea turtle. Yeah, that's, that's a real thing. Yeah, they come up in the summer and they don't head back south soon enough. And then the cold weather hits and they become numb and uh, and. and unable to swim their way back and just end up on the shore. So they have to evacuate these guys back to the south. That's a big job now that I know the size of these things, man. How do you lift up a 500-pound turtle? With a crane. You must. Yeah. No, it is also really important, especially since a lot of them are endangered now. So we really got to work on keeping their uh, their, fish, like the the turtle population up. That's why there's so many little turtle sanctuaries where they help hatch baby turtles, you know? Oh, cool. 
So how do they navigate? Well, sea turtles can migrate, you know, over really long distances. A female leatherback holds the record, right? She swam nearly 21,000 kilometers over 647 days from Indonesia to the west coast of America. Wow. Yeah, they they use Earth's magnetic fields to navigate, and they have particles of magnetite, which is a magnetic mineral, in their brains. The magnetite plays a role in orienting sea turtles to Earth's magnetic poles, so they have this map basically just printed in their brains since the moment they're born. That's remarkable. Where do they end up having their babies? Well, the females dig a hole in the sand and then lay their eggs. They can lay more than 150 eggs at a time. Yeah. A clutch, that's what they call a group of unhatched eggs. After laying eggs, the mom returns to the sea, leaving the little guys on their own. Uh, the gender of the turtles is not determined by chromosomes, as, as in most vertebrates, right? It's the temperature of the nest that determines their gender. Um, yeah, no, so if the temperature is warm around, you know, 31 degrees Celsius, yeah. most, most of them will be girls. Really? Yeah, but when the temperatures are lower, so like 28 Celsius, yeah. most of them will be guys. Huh. So once mat- so once mature, male turtles never leave the sea. Yeah. But females come ashore to lay eggs, typically always on the same beach that they were hatched. Wow. Yeah. So that's thanks to their biological map. That's amazing. So is the uh, future survival of sea turtles in question? All the seven sea turtle species are threatened with extinction. Wow. Their populations have really declined in the past two centuries because they get caught in fishing nets and people use them to create turtle products. Wow. So if temperatures keep rising due to climate change, there will be more females than males. Uh-oh. Skewing this, like the ratio, right? So mm-hmm. according to the International Dark Sky Associate of all the animals on our planet, perhaps none of them are under more threat from light pollution than sea turtles. Really? Yeah. Adult female sea turtles have a hard time finding an appropriately dark beach for laying their eggs. Yeah. And the lights of our cities, they, it confuses the babies. So instead of reaching the safety of the ocean, the newborn sea turtles, they'll often head for the illuminated roads, like with all the street lights and stuff. So away from the ocean. Exactly. Civilization, danger, and death, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're headed for. Oh, my. In Florida alone, millions of hatchling sea turtles die this way every year. Oh. And it's already hard enough alone for them to get to the water from their nests because, yeah. you know, birds are always waiting to scoop them up. And then the little fi- and the fish in the ocean are waiting there to eat them. Yeah. Oh. But so that's why there's so many turtle sanctuaries, right? They help the babies, you know, get to the get to the ocean safely. And, you know, you, it's hard to stop the birds from eating them because it's their natural food source. But, you know, there's a lot of gulls and there's not that many turtles anymore. Oh, well. I think we all got to do our part. Turn our lights off if you have a shoreline property at night. And if you know turtles are, are uh, laying their eggs there or the baby turtles are about to hatch, you want them to go into the ocean. Thanks, Lily. We've got Emily Darashi. She's the uh, River Strategy Coordinator at the St. Lawrence River Institute for Environmental Science. And Emily and I met uh, a while back and have witnessed her go on some pretty incredible career journeys, which is why we're having you on the uh, show today. Emily, welcome to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lawrence. It's nice to see you again, or yeah, hear from yeah. you again, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, the video is now off, yeah, so yeah. it's all here and from this point on. Hey, um, tell us about OceanWise and Ocean Bridge and how you got involved with that. 
Um, back in like 2022, I saw this ad for an Ocean Bridge program. Um, and I thought it was too good to be true, but I applied for it. Um, it's for youth ages. I think at the time it was 18 to 30. I think now it's 19 to 30. Um, and so you apply and you get to be an Ocean Bridge ambassador. So this is a program within OceanWise. And OceanWise is, I think, more widely known in BC on the West Coast. Um, it's an ocean conservation organization that's dedicated to empowering people to take action for the ocean. Um, most people know of OceanWise because of things like their seafood um, stickers that they put in the grocery stores. Um, but they also do a lot of work on ocean plastic, pollution, climate change, and overfishing too. And then one of their big pillars is the youth components. That's where the Ocean Bridge program comes in and where I kind of got involved. Um, so, And just I, this as a little more background, OceanWise was under the Vancouver Aquarium. And Vancouver Aquarium also had the great Canadian shoreline cleanup, which I'm not sure if that's going on any longer. But OceanWise sort of come out now on, on its own it's because it's become so popular they also work with restaurants and they help certify restaurants menus to make sure that when you're looking at their seafood choices you can just pick out which ones are sustainable and they'll have a little ocean wise smiling face in the menu to tell you this is a sustainable uh, meal choice so and and restaurants are paying good money for that that branding they're generating some income through this restaurant program and they're funneling right back into the uh, program like Ocean Bridge for young people like you. It's fantastic. So being an Ocean Bridge ambassador is considered a volunteer opportunity. And you start off by doing some online modules and meeting virtually. And then you go into different cohorts. So depending where you are in Canada, you're sent to different uh, parts of the country. So in my case, I'm in Eastern Ontario. So I was sent to Manitoulin Island for the... Um, remote learning journey, where I met with a whole bunch of other ambassadors for a 10-day journey, all expenses paid, where we got to meet with one another, talk about ocean sustainability. Um, and then we also got to visit with folks from Wikwamakong um, First Nation, and they actually hosted a lot of the visit. So we did boat tours and we did some trout fishing, which was amazing. Because wow. here on the St. Lawrence River, I don't see trout very often. So I was no, pretty no, excited. <laughs> no, a lot of those rainbow trout are around Manitoulin, by the way. They're escapees from the uh, the aquaculture, uh, uh, fin fish, uh, pen uh, aquaculture industry. Sometimes those um, nets bust open, and all those all those uh, rainbow trout escape, and they're they're just they absolutely have no fear; they'll bite anything. They're so easy to catch, and it's a uh, it can be a lot of fun. That's why I caught one. <laughs> <laughs> the ten days with your peers. And then there was another project you 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 organized in Ottawa at the Museum of Nature. Yeah, that's right. So that was the urban learning journey component of it. After the remote learning journey and getting to know one another, all the other ambassadors, we then had to design a project to do at the urban learning journey. So that was in Ottawa, as you said, and it was at the um, Canadian Museum of Nature. So myself and some fellow ambassadors decided to have a um, networking and speaker evening themed around uh, water sustainability. Um, so we had you, Lawrence, come and speak to the audience, and they were all really excited to hear from you, as well as Watersheds Canada and the Ottawa Riverkeeper. There was a lot of uh, young people in the crowd, for sure. And I think the panel discussion that ha happened afterwards was, I think, really terrific because really people were interested, like, how do I do this? And how do I get a career in this? And where else you get 
to ask these types of questions from people who have worked in the area of uh, conservation and environmentalism. It definitely impacted the people that were there, which was really awesome to see. So you finished the um, the, the six-month uh, journey through the Ocean mm-hmm. Bridge. You were involved with the River Institute before you went off to be an Ocean Bridge participant and then came oh, back to uh, the River Institute. Is that right? Yep. So I was, I've been staff at the River Institute since before I went on that, that journey. So I just took some time off work and was able to go and participate. And then I just saw how there's so many connections between that program and the River Institute. And I initiated a uh, partnership between the two and it's been fantastic. And um, now I've been able to kind of spread the word about this program to people in this area that don't know it exists. And I wish it existed when I was younger to go and to go and do like the Ocean Pathways program before having a full-time job. It's been really awesome to bring that information back to the community and engage people with it. Well, it hasn't slowed down your career advancement by the sounds of things. I mean, you seem to be doing very well at the uh, River Institute, you know, taking on uh, ever greater responsibilities there. Yeah, yeah. So it's been really fun. I feel very lucky. Um, I stay very busy. I like to keep my toes in everything. It's almost like a bad habit. <laughs> but it's too much. Um, but yeah, so whenever I went off for the Ocean Bridge program, um, I was a research assistant. Um, and now I'm the River Strategy Coordinator, as well as teaching um, for the Environmental Technician Program at St. Lawrence College. So keeping my toes in education and the outreach components, networking with all the different uh, partners on the river and beyond. So yeah, I feel pretty lucky in my position. So get to keep variety going. Now, I don't know. Yeah, you know, no one's ever described you to me. So excuse me if I get this uh, wrong, but do you feel there's some um... Uh, more inclusiveness, like we hear about diversity, uh, equity, and inclusiveness, right? Now as mm-hmm. a sort of a, a policy for environmental organizations have adopted recently. And it's a great to have that policy. It sort of eliminates those types of systemic barriers. But you see a change, you see more diverse people coming into the field of conservation and, and environmentalism in, in your own experience? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's becoming a safer space for everyone. Um, and I think there's a big push to make sure that everyone feels welcome and like they can thrive in this environment. So I for sure think so too. And just the fact um, that we're all also trying very hard at the River Institute, specifically in the Great River Report too, is to make the science accessible for everyone um, mm. so that people don't have to have a science background to be able to understand the results of different science projects and indicators. So we're working really hard to um, share information in a way that people can understand without this background and um, engage people with it too, through workshops and uh, things like that. Yeah, because you guys have a lot of programs where you're educating uh, people in classrooms too, right? I mean, that's a, a big bread and butter sort of component of the River Institute as well. I think, I don't know how many thousands of kids you guys reach every year through your uh, in-classroom programs. Yeah, so we have um, an entire department um, dedicated to education. And you're right, they go into classrooms and they do things like aquatic invertebrate ecology. They bring students to the River Institute for fish ecology. So students get the opportunity to actually like engage with live organisms. Um, and I put, I was a part of that team as a summer student back in the day, and it was really rewarding to see students kind of like scared to touch a fish for the first time. And then they, they just touch it with their finger and they're so proud of themselves for taking wow. that step and they realize it's not that scary. So it's really, really cool to see people get 
getting that experiential learning opportunity here at the Institute, as well as they go to their classrooms. And we're starting to also circulate materials online too. So the Changemaker series, which you know about Lawrence, is your, mm-hmm. one of our change makers. So we're trying to reach audiences locally, hands-on, touching the fish, looking at invertebrates with the microscope, and also across Canada and the world, if we can, to get people to care about their ecosystem around them. And, and a commitment to uh, providing content in more accessible formats too, right? Like, you know, your website and, and audio and, and video and, uh, you know, not Braille yet, but, you know, certainly uh, downloadable electronic content that can be Brailled. So um, I think you're reaching out to, uh, you know, pockets of the demographic that have traditionally been overlooked to a large extent in, in this area. Absolutely. And the only way we can get everyone to care about the environment is for them to be able to learn about it and engage with it. So there's no other way. We have to make sure everyone can learn about it and enjoy it. So that's and the, the, goal. the And the different perspectives they bring to it too, right? Like I think about, you know, the whole underwater world and, and it's such a hidden world for so many people, unless you scuba dive or you have access to, you know, underwater film footage. But, you know, if it's not filming the water you're interested in, it still remains a mystery. So the idea of, of visualization of what's down there through, through smell, through knowledge, through uh, traditional knowledge, through science, through uh, taste, through, uh, feel, you know, there's so many ways to circumvent the need to see the underwater world and, and develop an understanding of what's happening. But you've developed that yourself, I'm sure, to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. So we and we also have on our team Stephanie Hildebrand, who does underwater photography as well. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting because she's trying to engage people with things like algae and macrophytes that people don't usually like and appreciate under the water and making it into something beautiful. So that's been really interesting to see. And people really are engaging with it really well, um, too. Yeah. From an artistic perspective, almost, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. Something glamorous almost, which most people would find, they find it on their shoreline and they're like, ew, what is this? But whenever Stephanie photographs it underwater, it's something majestic. You know, there's something to be said for for poetry and music and art and photography to to help bridge people to make connections with nature. And uh, there's, there's many ways to reach out. There's many ways to form those, those bonds. And I think we're just really just, we're just, you know, scratching the surface on all this. Yes, absolutely. And I think that in engaging people with the environment, it can't just be through science and it can't just be through touching the water. It has to also encompass art, music, storytelling, um, and just talking about the water and relating to it as well. First Nations, knowledge keeper, traditional knowledge, you guys are quite closely uh, working with the uh, Mohawks of Akwesasne and other uh, Mohawk uh, communities along the river. How is that influencing the work you're doing? Um, It has a really big influence on the work of the Great River Report and the River Strategy, as both projects are being done in partnership with the Mohawk Council of Akwesasne Environment Program. Um, And the River Report specifically um, there is in the Indigenous perspective piece and how it's actually being framed through the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address. It's so beautiful. Educator, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. if you see, we have a book actually that um, a local artist in Akwesasne did the drawings for representing the different uh-huh. levels of the Thanksgiving address. 
Um, oh. And it's this beautiful line work that she did. Um, and so we have a book actually available through the Great River Rapport that highlights the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address and her art. And it's just, it's so beautiful. And so that's one of the ways that we're engaging people with the environment and the indigenous perspective and art. Mm. So, yeah. And you've got Abe quite involved. He He's yeah. an environmental leader in one of the communities there and, and off to do his PhD, but he's still very involved with a lot of your initiatives. Absolutely. So Abe was there at the very beginning of the Great River Report. And so he's a huge part of the project, um, a huge partner. And he's also um, a part of the river strategy as he's contracted to help us develop our memorandum of understanding and different subcommittees as well for that initiative. So um, it's really great working with Abe and getting his perspective and uh, working together into Rowampum and the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving Address. Yeah, he he went at the meeting you held recently. He he talked about the uh, the belt and uh, I think the two layer belt or the three. Oh, the two wampum belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was explaining how uh, the river strategies being framed through two wampum um, and how basically two wampum is whenever you work together in a way that's guided by um, peace, friendship, and respect, which basically you respect the autonomy of the two distinct societies being Western and Indigenous in working together. So you can collaborate, but it's just respecting the two different knowledge systems. I love it. You know, it, it's, I've heard another Indigenous individual wrote a book called The Two-Eye Seeing, you know, that there's two ways to see the world and, and both are legitimate ways. And mm-hmm. uh, together they can bring a lot of, um, you know, synergy to the, to solving some of these problems. Absolutely. Yeah. It is not what we're talking about today, right? Synergy, diversity, perspectives, you know, diverse backgrounds, inclusion. Uh, Emily, thank you for all the things you're doing on that front. Uh, what's next for you? Um, I think I'm just going to stay the way. I can't wait to see where everything goes. The River Report has exciting findings coming out with our reports. The River Strategy is just in the development phase, and we're just about to do a big push in the new year to get more people involved, which is always exciting. We're basically going out and making friends on the river, which is such a blast. Um, many, so I think many, I'm just going to stay the way. It's a lot of, it's a lot of um, kilometers of river too, that you guys are involved with, right? I think is it 400 kilometers? Is that right? I think that is the key number, but it actually goes beyond that as well, because we're trying to engage um, the watersheds that go beyond the upper St. Lawrence river, the tributaries, the upstream and the downstream regions. So it kind of goes beyond that too. So our scope is quite large, but that's all the more exciting. So there's so many people we have yet to meet that are involved in uh, research and work that has to do with our tributaries and Lake Ontario and Montreal and so on. So there's lots of work to be done, but it'll all be really fun. So I'm looking forward to what it brings. Emily, where can people find out more about Ocean Bridge program if they're interested in maybe applying? Absolutely. So for Ocean Bridge, they can check out um, the OceanWise Youth on Instagram and Facebook, or you can go to the OceanWise website. Um, I don't know the exact URL, but if you Google OceanWise and especially OceanWise Youth, the Ocean Bridge program will come up. They do have the Ocean Action Grant that um, applications are due on the 15th and 30th of each month, I believe until January 15th in the new year. And this is where youth between 15 and 30 
can apply for funding to do an action project in their community that benefits the environment and their communities. Maybe a shoreline cleanup or a workshop to engage people with sustainability, anything like that. So there's lots of opportunities for youth to engage with the environment. And I highly recommend any youthful um, listeners to check that out and see if it's something that you might want to take part in. Thank you so much, Emily. No problem. Thank you for having me. It was great to chat. My biggest tip I can share with you is to express your differences. You know, not to become controversial, but your different way of perceiving and analyzing your background, your experience, your perceptions, your senses, your education, your culture. All of this now is super important. The more unique you are, the more you're going to bring perspective to a conversation that can't be easily replicated by artificial intelligence. You know, AI goes out on the web and harvests rich banks of data to replicate from, and uniqueness is not out there on the internet so much. We're just starting to express ourselves and find ways of, you know, identifying ourselves as truly diverse people of unique backgrounds. Seize the moment, be proud of who you are, all your unique perspectives and abilities, and make sure people understand it's a strength that you're bringing to their organization, not a challenge. When I started my path of conservation back in the 1988, well, it goes way back, that's when I started my master's in environmental studies at York University, I was not impressed by the very homogenous student crowd that I was, you know, sitting with every day in class for the first year. Everyone had the same sort of background, the same look, the same walk, the same talk, the same ideas. You know, it it was like listening to one person with many different voices. And, um, And I was different. You know, I had a guide dog, I was legally blind, and... People didn't know quite how to take me. I even had one teacher ask me to leave her class because she didn't think I could do the work because we were studying multimedia communications. This is before the internet. You know, we were talking about newspapers, television, radio, magazines. And I said, well, I know radio and I've listened to TV, but newspapers and magazines, I need to know more about. That's why I'm taking your course. Well, she let me stay. And uh, I found it challenging, but it was interesting. I learned a lot about communications. All that to say, things got easier little by little, but it wasn't until recently that people really started to think about inclusion in a new way. Now organizations have this policy of embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a common mantra that environmental groups and conservation groups have posted on their websites that they have uh, an inclusive uh, policy of diversity and equity, but it's a policy, right? So they eliminate the systemic barrier, but have they really made a difference? Take advantage of that and present yourself as representing that, you know? Don't be ashamed or feel that you have to hide your differences. Be proud of it. Organizations now are going to be more accepting and almost seeking out these diverse perspectives. I have to say that in the last year or so, 
I'm getting a lot more requests to participate in different types of communication activities that I've never had before. And maybe it has something to do with my success. And maybe it has more to do with my diversity. I'll let you guys decide. I've been doing a lot of this now for quite a few years. Yeah, I'm enjoying it more and more. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions at feedback at ami.ca. Thanks to Mark Affalo. He's our technical producer. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.